Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. It's 1973 and Britain is in turmoil. The year begins with a stock market crash and quickly gets worse. By May, millions are on strike. Miners and steelworkers, postal workers and train drivers. Inflation is surging and whole industries are on the brink of collapse. But away from all of the societal unrest, unmentioned in the news, something else is going on, something subtler and stranger, something that remained invisible until many years later. In front rooms and hospitals across the country, an unusually high number of baby boys were being born. We're not just talking about a few extra baby boys here. In 1973 to 74, the ratio of baby boys to baby girls born in England and Wales was higher than at any other time in the 20th century. What on earth was going on? I'm Hannah Fry, a mathematician who studies patterns in human behaviour, and this is Uncharted Tales of Data and Discovery. This is a series about how graphs can help you to see the invisible, and about how sometimes, if you know where to look, there is mystery and drama and intrigue to be found, all concealed within a few lines on a page. I was researching my book, Sex by Numbers, and um, I plotted out the sex ratio statistics from 1838 to 2012. And as far as I know, nobody had ever plotted that before. I've never, ever seen it. But when you draw it, it is one of those graphs, one of those delicious graphs, where you just think, what is going on here? This is extraordinary. This is David Spiegelhalter, a statistician and sometimes sexologist. He'd noticed something odd, something striking. Over the 20th century in the UK, in a few specific years, the proportion of male births spikes sharply. Now, in general, we expect more boys to be born than girls. The ratio is not quite 50-50. It typically hovers somewhere around 104 boys born for every 100 girls. That is a weirdly neat trick of nature. Because it just happens to compensate for the fact that boys are more likely to die young. So the imbalance at birth evens out over time. But that ratio at birth is not fixed. If you look at each year across the 20th century, there are notable moments where the ratio of boys to girls shoots up. The first spike arrives in 1919, of course, just after the end of the First World War. The second is in 1944, towards the tail end of the Second World War. And in 1973, it surges to its highest point ever. You might be tempted to dismiss this line as random variation, the messy uncertainty of biology writ large. 
And yet, this is a pattern that you'll find in other places too. The sex ratio also peaks for the main combatants during and just after both world wars. You see it in France, in Germany, Austria, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands. This is such a strangely robust observation that it has been given a suggestive name, the returning soldier effect. The returning soldier effect is the observation that more boys are born at the end of wars. And it's, and it's just true. It is absolutely true. It's just a wonderful mystery. Why? What is going on? What indeed? There have been no shortage of theories, but perhaps the most delightful comes from a German pastor in the 1700s by scrupulously collecting data from parish registers. He noted for the first time that consistently more boys were born than girls. And then, amid long, dry columns of population statistics, Sutmich detected the subtle hand of God. In his magnum opus, The Divine Order in the Changes of the Human Species, he set out the evidence for heavenly interference. Here was God in the data, quietly overseeing births and deaths, carefully managing the numbers of boys and girls born, taking and giving life according to some celestial algorithm, all to craft the ideal society. And thus, he argued, at the end of a war, God must be trying to replenish the male stock in a country. A divine rebalancing. It seemed like the perfect explanation, but sadly one that doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny. And so, centuries later, hoping for a more modern account, another man took up the pastor's mission, hoping to unearth its hidden secrets. I came to UCL about 30 years ago, and one of the strange people who was in the department at that time was Bill. I mean, Bill was the kind of guy... I was busily working away, and I would take a break and I'd wander off, and I'd bump into Bill. And there he was, standing in the corridor with a deerstalker hat, his trousers in his bicycle clips, and he had this wicked grin on his face. And he would come up to me and tell me some new facts that he'd found. This is Andrew Pomiankowski, or Pom as he's known, a colleague and sparring partner of Bill, or William James. Bill passed away in 2022, and for many years, decades in fact, he carved out an incredibly niche area of expertise. He was interested in only one thing. <laughs> he really was a man dedicated to one particular question, which is... What is the human sex ratio of offspring? And what might explain deviations? Some people have more male offspring and some have more female offspring. That was his big obsession. And it really was an obsession. Bill was something of a maverick. He didn't care for a normal academic job, but he managed to hold on to an honorary appointment at University College London, which meant that he could access journals and books and use an academic address. His partner for almost 60 years, Susan Crichton, recalls how dedicated he was to his research, to the exclusion of much else. He worked in this really squalid basement flat 
Um, and he worked, he had a typewriter, a manual typewriter, which he kept going for years before I persuaded him to move on to a word processor. Um, and he'd write his papers, he'd type them out, and then, then he'd take them to the, the journals that he was trying to get them into. And people seemed to like this, people at him turning up on the door with a, with a paper. And he got a lot of publishing, a lot, and he was totally committed. But you see, he didn't have anything else to do. He, he managed to avoid having to teach, he managed to avoid all administrative um, things. He managed to avoid, he definitely avoided cleaning. <laughs> Bill would cycle around London to sniff out new data sources. He corresponded with a huge number of friends and colleagues around the world in longhand written letters and would return to his basement office to pore over the evidence that he'd gathered. Could it be something to do with the effects of stress that explained the ratio of boys to girls born? Or maybe parental age? Was it all down to differences in the father's height? He considered them all. But in the end, to explain the returning soldier effect in particular, he favoured one theory more than the others. A theory that was all about sex. Let me transport you back to 1918. The armistice which ended World War I was signed in November. Over the next year, more than three million British soldiers were demobilised and made their way home. Think of this vast number of newly demobbed soldiers being reunited with wives and girlfriends after months or years surrounded by suffering and death. Well, you might expect both parties to be pretty jubilant, deeply relieved and fantastically horny. (laughs) And okay, that is speculation. It's difficult to measure, of course. But it is true that those soldiers returning in 1918 and 19 produced the highest number of babies born at any point in the 20th century. The more than 1.1 million babies born in 1920 remains a standout, an all-time record for the UK. So what about 1944? The Second World War came to an end in the following year. But it turns out that in 1944, there were large numbers of soldiers on temporary leave. And the lead up to D-Day saw an extraordinary number of new marriages. But OK, so what? Even if it's true, how would the frequency of sex make any difference to the number of boys being born? Well, Bill had an answer. He'd spotted something subtle in the data, something which convinced the statistician David Spiegelhalter. My belief is follows the work of Bill James at University College London, who identified that um, the sex ratio is dependent on when in the cycle the conception occurs. And so if, if uh, conception occurs early on in the cycle, the uh, ratio of boys to girls is higher than later on in the cycle. So why should... Um, at the end of wars, conceptions tend to occur early on in the cycle because there's more sex. So essentially, if you are having a lot of sex throughout um, a period of fertility, you're more likely to get pregnant early on because if you're pregnant early on, you can't get pregnant later on. (laughs) It turns out that the chances of a woman conceiving a male or a female child very subtly change depending on when in her cycle she conceives. Slightly earlier... And it's ever so slightly more likely to result in a male child. This might be because of the gently fluctuating hormonal environment or the delicate changes in acidity which will affect X and Y sperm differently. We are talking about 
tiny, tiny changes to probability here. Certainly too small to be seen at the level of an individual woman. So you can't use this to game the system to your own advantage. But fragile as it is, the signal is there. It's a whisper but it's there. And once you scale up to the size of a population, there is a pattern that starts to become clear. At the end of a war, people have much more sex than normal, women get pregnant slightly earlier, and there is a spike in the number of baby boys who are born. And yet, what of 1973? 1973 wasn't a war, there were no returning soldiers. Are we to believe that rising inflation, strikes and sky-high energy prices were turning people on? I mean, kind of, yes. A lot of things were going on in 1973. It was a time of intense sexual activity in young people. There was a surge of teenage pregnancy. Um, widespread use of contraceptive pill was still not there. And the age of marriage reached its lowest ever point. All this says that there was a huge amount of sexual activity in this newly liberated time among young people. And a lot of sex means more boys. So there you have it. The oscillations of this simple line, built from tiny shifts in the probability of conceiving a boy or a girl, hold countless unheard stories of human history. The passion of the soldier and his lover reunited for some brief period of leave. The jubilation of peace after years of devastating war. Or a population embracing newfound sexual liberation amidst political turmoil. The faint echoes of a nation's libido flexing with the force of history. I told you graphs were interesting. Up next on Uncharted for Discovery, Hannah Fry tells the tale of a climate scientist whose work shocked the world and provoked a scandal. The year is 2009. A group of hackers have spotted a weakness in an unsuspecting server within the University of East Anglia. While the oblivious academics were going about their business, a treasure trove of their emails were being siphoned away, leaked out from the university system and unleashed around the world via a clandestine Russian server. Of the emails that were featured in the release, many of them were emails to me or from me, and it became pretty obvious to me that um, I was probably the primary target. That is the voice of Michael Mann, one of the scientists at the centre of the scandal. Back then, he was an associate professor of meteorology, working on a case of international significance. Soon enough, extracts of the stolen emails started to pop up in right-wing news websites. And when looked at under the harsh glare of public scrutiny, they revealed what appeared to be some quite damning evidence. The headlines this morning, the UN says it will investigate claims that British experts manipulated scientific data about the effects of... New developments today involving those hacked emails from Britain suggesting scientists are fudging data... To Thanks to the hackers, Michael Mann now stood accused of a nefarious conspiracy, that he and his colleagues were fabricating the evidence for climate change. As the global warming summit looms, skullduggery, scientific espionage and black propaganda. Have scientists really been manipulating the data? They're all frauds. They are all liars. They are skunks. And they ought to be held up for public... 
public ridicule, drawn and quartered, or whatever it is, because this is a worldwide hoax. So what had Michael been up to in his office to make him the target of such ire? Had he been cooking the books, or was it something else? To explain why he was targeted, let me take you back briefly to the mid-1990s, when Michael was a little-known climate scientist, fresh out of his PhD, then working quietly from his office nestled among the leafy walkways of Pennsylvania University. By then, other scientists had been collecting thermometer readings from around the world for a century and a half. When looked at together, the numbers did look like the Earth was getting slightly warmer. But the question that was still unanswered was, how much did that matter? Was this unusual in the Earth's longer history? Could this rise just be part of the climate's natural ebb and flow over the centuries? We knew the planet had warmed uh, the better part of a degree Celsius over the past century, but we didn't know how unusual that warming was, whether a similar warming might have happened uh, in the past. And so what we sought to do was to reconstruct how climate changed in the more distant past. They needed the big picture, the long view. But how on earth do you work out what the temperature used to be deep into history? How do you reconstruct the climate year by year from centuries ago? Well, it's not easy to find or to interpret, but the evidence is out there. It's just hidden, buried, in fact, in some of the wildest and most remote places on the planet. Rising into the sky over the Amazon jungle, atop the Peruvian Andes, sits the Calcaya ice cap. You can't reach it by car or even by helicopter. At 19,000 feet, the air is too thin to hold you, so you won't come across many people. But perhaps if you'd been a bird flying over in 1983, you might have spotted a group of campers and horses slowly picking their way up the mountain, approaching the vast ice sheet on top. Well, in those early days, it was tough. Uh, we, we have to move six tons of equipment into these places. And on Kalkaya, it's uh, two days by horse, and so you have to have 40 horses. This is Lonnie Thompson, a professor, a climate scientist and an adventurer. He was the first to collect ice core samples from Kalkaya in Peru. And to do so took an astonishing level of commitment. Well, we, we camped on the edge of the ice cap. And then every day we would make this trip up to the summit to drill. And at that time we were young and full of energy. And we actually would race each other to get to 18,700 feet. And we could make that trip up there in 45 minutes. Uh, today it takes me about four hours uh, to get there. Uh, so we had to physically carry the drill, the solar panels, assemble the drill, cut the cores, carry the samples, process the samples. It took us three months to recover those cores. We had been told so many times, you cannot do this. And we did it. These cylindrical cores, metal tubes carefully packed with ice and snow, then had to be transported hundreds of miles back to the lab while still frozen in order to reveal the clues that were locked inside. Every year, a new covering of snow is laid down on top of the ice cap. More in winter, less in summer. Year after year, it follows the seasonal rhythm of the earth. 
Each layer is then an icy window into the past. The deeper you go, the further back you see. And trapped inside, tiny air bubbles and subtly shifting chemical signatures contain astonishingly rich evidence of the conditions when the snow first settled. Not just the conditions of the surrounding air, but also its temperature. There are just so many ways that the Earth system has recorded our past. And when you bring them all together, uh, you get this vision of how the Earth's climate has changed. Ice cores are a precious source of evidence. But if Michael Mann was to get a truly global history of the climate, they're not going to be enough. There are other options too. Some species of tree can live for centuries and they will also build layers over time, each hiding clues as to the temperature in the growing year. But all the trees in the world still won't give you a complete picture when two-thirds of the planet's surface is liquid water. For many years, Professor Kim Cobb has been travelling to the Line Islands in the Pacific to dive off the coast of the world's largest atoll. Diving on Christmas Island is no joke. (laughs) So you have to wait for the conditions to be just right. And even then, you're really rolling out into extremely open ocean, big waves just crashing through your research site and you're being thrown around the boat as you get ready for your dive. And that's on a good day. 40 feet below the surface, battling with stiff currents while wielding a powerful drill, Kim's mission is to carefully prize out samples of coral because inscribed in the layers of coral that build up year on year, just like the ice cores, is a record of climate history. As the coral builds its skeleton from ocean water, um, it imparts a very small shift in the oxygen isotope composition as it moves from seawater to to coral skeleton. And that shift is temperature dependent. And so what this does is it actually bakes in a week by week record of ocean temperatures into the coral skeleton. And then years later, sometimes millennia later, we can actually go in and look at the chemistry of the coral and understand what those temperatures were in the more distant past. It's glorious. Kim's ability to interpret the coral depends on an extraordinary fusion of scientific understanding of the physics of isotopes, the chemistry of coral skeletons, the geology of fossils, the engineering of advanced lab equipment, not to mention the determination of those like Kim who undertake gruelling and ambitious expeditions and put in years of careful work analysing the samples and finally sharing their data. So that by the mid-1990s, after decades of work by intrepid researchers, Michael Mann could sit at his desk in front of a truly global dataset, rich with clues about climate patterns from every corner of the Earth, extending back for centuries. We were making uh, use of the collective information that had been obtained by literally hundreds of researchers over decades around the world. And so we needed to develop a statistical method that could really take the disparate information to get one number for each year, which was the average temperature over the entire northern hemisphere. As he went through the data, year on year, he added each new dot to a single graph. Time along the bottom, average temperature along the side. And slowly, 
the pattern revealed itself. And so it was the plot of that single number back in time that yielded the curve that's now known as the hockey stick curve. Imagine then an ice hockey stick. It's laid flat on the ground with the blade pointing up to the sky. The long handle represents average global temperatures, extending back for a thousand years. There are, of course, wiggles up and down, but squint and the temperature has remained fairly steady over that millennium. But then as industrialization kicks off, we reach the corner of the blade, the sudden shocking uptick, which brings us to the present day. The hockey stick graph is, by any account, an extraordinary image. It distills decades of work by hundreds of scientists and represents centuries of advancing insight, all captured in one simple and startling line. So it was Earth Day, April 22nd, 1998. Uh, Nature chose to publish our original hockey stick article on that date. The piece appeared as a threatening story packaged in an arresting graphic and the media were clamoring to hear about it. I was a young, naive uh, postdoc um, and unprepared for the sort of the level of attention the study got uh, because it was such a sort of visceral indicator of the profound impact that we were having on the planet. Um, the hockey stick curve became a threat to some powerful vested interests, uh, the fossil fuel industry. Funded lobbyists launched their attacks. His work made Michael a central target of the email thefts of 2009. And as ClimateGate gathered momentum, online trolls became convinced that Michael and his colleagues were frauds. Michael's graph had pulled him onto centre stage in one of the most long-lasting and vicious rows to have ever existed. It was the worry that we could be fired from our jobs, that uh, we could be subject to all sorts of punitive actions. There was a real fear on my part. And what was so frustrating was I knew it was all nonsense. Investigation after investigation cleared Michael and his colleagues of any wrongdoing. And now, well, there's not just one hockey stick. There's a whole hockey team. Scientists have built on Michael's work, extending that long handle back another thousand years, two millennia of climate history. And, of course, since 1998, we've had 25 more years of warming. The story the hockey stick graph revealed is correct. Human activity is driving climate change. The changes that we are seeing in our climate are unprecedented. The question is, are we going to do something about it in time? The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.